Father, in our hearts, I, I, I sincerely and deeply pray that when we say your grace is enough, that we're not saying it like, yeah, Lord, that, that's enough. That's enough for me. I mean, you've got it, you've got it covered. No. Lord, I hope our, say, our hearts are, are saying that it's, that it's filled up and that it's pressed down and that it's overflowing in our lives. Not simply enough, but an overabundance. Paul said it's sufficient. Paul said that in his weakness, your strength is demonstrated. Well, we love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We ask that for us today as we look into your word. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please, uh, please have a seat. I was somewhat surprised this morning when I heard Tracy say, Lost as a goose. Where is he at? How did you know I was going to be talking about geese this morning? In 1938, we'll talk about cranes first. In, in 1938, there were only 15 wild whooping cranes left in North America. Striking. That was down from 10,000 just 100 years earlier. There were 13 that were in captivity in Louisiana because this main route that they had was from Louisiana-Texas area border up, uh, up to uh, northern Canada. But a hurricane, as is wont to do, went through Louisiana, killed half of those, and the remaining birds never bred again. The whooping crane was already known as a rare bird, and many feared that with so few birds that they would go extinct. Now, around the same time in, in 1936, there was a zoologist in Austria. His name was Conrad Lorenz. And he investigated this phenomena that uh, certain types of birds and other animals as well, when they opened their eyes... And within an hour to 17 or whatever the time frame was, whatever they saw that was large and moving became their mama. Didn't matter what it was. Conrad Lorenz, a six foot, you know, 250 pound bearded man, does not look like a goose. But he got about 16 goose eggs. He uh, waited for them and he put them in an incubator. And then what happened was, uh, right before they were to hatch, he put half of them under a goose and he left half of them in the incubator. And so, as the little goslings came forth, they saw their goose mama quack quack. And he made sure that he was the first thing that they saw. And sure enough, they imprinted on him. For the rest of their lives, he was their mama. And uh, so to ensure that this actually had happened, he took all those 16 little goslings, he put them in a box, got them all shook up, lifted the box, and sure enough, half the little, half the little critters ran off to the goose mama and half the little critters ran off 
to him. So it's a fascinating thing. Now enter Bill Lishman. Now he was a creative Canadian environmentalist who believed that migratory routes were learned. They were not embedded in some kind of genetic code. And so he was wondering if he could get geese to follow him in an ultralight aircraft. And perhaps, you know, he could teach them how to migrate. And so he got a bunch of birds. They imprinted on him. And uh, the whole time they were growing up, he had recorded sounds of this ultralight motor so that it was something that they were familiar with from the time they were itty-bitty. And sure enough, uh, when they uh, grew up and they were ready to fly and migrate, uh, he took off in his ultralight. There they were in a nice little V formation with him. He flew him down to Virginia. Now, he, you know, the question was at that point, uh, we got them there, but would they return? Sure enough, the next year they did. And they've been on that migratory route that he charted ever, ever since the early 80s. So some other environmentalists, they, they saw what had happened and they said, we wonder if we can reintroduce the whooping crane back to North America and the eastern seaboard where they had another uh, route that hadn't been flown in over 100 years because there weren't any of them to fly it. So he was able to get permission from the Canadian government to get a few eggs, very rare as that was, and they imprinted on him. And sure enough, they grew up with him. Sure enough, he played the sound of the ultralight. And sure enough, he went from Wisconsin down to Florida, which was their other, you know, old ancient route that they used to take. And they flew down there with him. Again, the question, would they come back? And they did. And they've been migrating ever since. And that little, that little uh, flight of four that he took down there is now 85. And there are now 800 whooping cranes in North America. Largest bird in North America, by the way. Seven foot wingspan. They stand like five feet three inches tall. I mean, these are, these are big birds, right? In 1996, his journey was made into a movie. Perhaps some of you have seen it. It's called Fly Away Home. Imprinting is an amazing thing. Absolutely. Now, fortunately, we don't imprint. Otherwise, we would all love our pediatrician or obstetrician or whoever delivered us. But that's not, uh, that's not the way we work. What we have instead are what are called mirror neurons. Now, educationally, that might be referred to in a phrase that every educator in here has, has learned, and you've heard more uh, times than you can remember, is more is caught than taught. That is, people do what they see and what they experience, not what they're told. <laughs> so... Uh, this is an incredible thing. I mean, and, and we all imitate from speech and social skills, even the way we look at each other, even the way you are sitting now enjoying, I trust, this message and this worship service. If you were there hysterically laughing, our mirror neurons would not be connecting with one another. 
you see. It's just the way we work. It's the way we operate. It's how we know when we're with somebody else something is appropriate or it's inappropriate. That's what causes that, those little mirror neurons. You can literally watch your kiddos Go back in your mind if your kiddos are well-grown like ours. And you can watch them sitting in front of a mirror trying on mommy's shoes or daddy's jacket or, or whatever, trying to do the facial expressions or the tones or, you know, whatever it is that you hear. And it's a wonderful thing. And it was always a great joy for Barb and I to see that. It's also a great responsibility Sweetheart, where did you hear that? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> it's a joy, it's a daunting responsibility because children are always watching, always listening, even when you think they are not. They are. The radar is on. And uh, whether we like it or not, they will tend to repeat what we do, not what we tell them to do. And we learn by imitation as well. Uh, psychologists have long noted that one of the most significant ways that we learn is by imitating others. So I, I learned to preach by imitating others preaching. I don't... How would you know what a preacher preaches unless you saw a preacher preach? You, you, you don't. And so I learned how to preach in a rescue mission. That's where I learned how to, to preach. And that's, that's, I hope, and I, I hope you can throw, you know, don't throw rocks, but you throw, you know, little soft Nerf toys at me if, if this isn't true. I try to make everything as clear and as understandable as I can. That skill came about from preaching in rescue missions. I learn from books. You know, I imitate those who've gone before. So it shouldn't be surprising at all to us when the Apostle Paul begins in Ephesians 5, verse 1, by saying, be imitators of God. The word, the Greek word there, uh, if you're not to the passage, please uh, take a moment to turn to Ephesians 5, we'll be looking in, in verses 1 through 14. The word there is the word mimetai, okay? Which is where we get our English word mimic. So that's the notion. We're to mimic, we're to imitate God. And uh, this English word came from <clears throat> the way we got it, of course. Pretty much everything we... Well, not everything... English is really a, 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 lot of, a lot of stuff. But a lot of stuff came from Italian. Okay, so, so uh, they, this word uh, imitate came from uh, imitatio, which is related to, you already know it, imago. In other words, we can imitate the imago day within us, imitate God because we... Uh, have, or we, we can imitate, yeah, because we have the Imago Dei. The former is made possible by the latter. Because we're created in God's image, we have the capacity, or at least the capability, to imitate God. 
And uh, we're also told to imitate Christ as well. So let's look at this text. Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place, out of sync, right? Out of the mirror neuron range here for being a believer. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So what exactly is it that we imitate God concerning? There are actually two things in play. The first one is looking ahead to verse 2. Walking in love. That's how we imitate Christ. Okay, Living a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. So the first reality, the first way that we imitate God is to live a life that is worthy of God's calling, that's worthy of our new position in Christ. That is, we love selflessly. I mean, that's really what it's about. Unfortunately, love is a word that has been reduced to... Talk about reduced. We love pizza. We love ice cream. We, we, we use this word, this precious word. There's a real poverty in the English language to express this sort of thing. I, I love that Greek has five different words to express this word. We pretty much have love and like, and that's pretty much what we, what we, what we go with. But if it, it, love is so much deeper than what our culture makes it out to be. And Paul here is setting a standard of love. The standard of love and how we live is Jesus Christ. How he loved and how he lived. And how did he do that? He laid down his life for us. I mean, the cross is the most beautiful and simultaneously the most tragic picture of love in all of history. Here it is, you have God sending His Son, His Son willingly going to the cross to die. And it's a place where God looks on His Son, His heart broken, we'll never know. 
And yet, out of that, we are forgiven. That's why in the communion, it is both a celebration, but it's also a remembrance. We celebrate, but the cost was great. But there's more. And we alluded to that this morning as well. And that is, not only does Paul say, walk in love, he says... Be imitators of God. The walking in love is specifically directed to Christ. The imitators of God is directed to... Boom. Notice the first word in the text. What does it say? Therefore. Okay, again, we have to ask, what is it therefore? We look back one verse and we find this in chapter 432. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Walking in love, that is imitating Christ, is a description. But this is the foundation. The foundation, the reason for the therefore that we should forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. I I don't want you to miss this, please. In fact, this is the most important truth in this message. And that is this, the merit system of holiness, having anything to do with your salvation, is no longer in place. Period. In other words, the quality of being particularly good or or worthy so as to deserve some merit with God has zero, zero place in your salvation. There is no meritocracy with God as it relates to salvation. The scales do not hold your righteousness on one side and Christ's righteousness on the other. That's not what the scales hold. The scales hold God's righteous demand for holiness on one side and Christ's righteous sacrifice for sin on the other. And you know what that does? That balances the scales. And it's through that that we are redeemed. Therefore, the burden of the law is lifted. Many, many people struggle day after day after day, confusing what it means not to walk a sanctified life with being saved. Those are two different things. They're not the same thing. And Paul's going to, pull the threads on that here in just a second. But before I get to that, I want to just say too that in my experience, one of the most difficult expressions of forgiveness is forgiveness towards oneself. I could break many of your hearts with story after story of deep and abiding pain stemming from the inability for a person to forgive, in particular to forgive oneself. This is especially true of moral injury where a person violates their very core in a moment and then they spend a lifetime 
of regret. So you'll have to forgive me if I don't do that. Suffice it to say that it's often easier to forgive others than it is to forgive oneself. And I want us to also understand who we are. Who you are. Who, who I am. We are sinners. Saved by grace. We are here as people who have been redeemed. Perfection is on the far side of that. The far side of that. God has forgiven you through Christ. I want you to pause for a moment and just consider that. Rest your eyes, take a breath, and say, I am forgiven. For Christ's sake, God has forgiven you and forgiven me. And therefore, you can forgive yourself. Now, I'm aware, well aware, that many have been taught that self-forgiveness is secular and it's not biblical. As someone who has for many, many years, as a pastor, as a missionary, as a chaplain, and now here, I can tell you that I simply hold a different opinion. Only if self-forgiveness is put in the place of God's forgiveness does it become a problem. Self-forgiveness is not about letting yourself off the hook. Oh, I'm forgiven, that's, that's all, all cool. You know, like Paul says, ah, let's go do some more sinning so the grace may abound. He's Make anointed, he says. God forbid that this should be. Self-forgiveness is not about that. It's not about condoning your behavior or anyone else's behavior. It means that in view of God's forgiveness through Christ, through your acknowledgement of sin and the confession to God and the exercise of faith in the Word of God that He proclaims to us, even this morning in our passage, God was reconciling the world through Christ, not holding their trespasses and sins against them. Brothers, we should, sisters, we should rejoice. It is not only possible to forgive yourself and move past it without ruminating. You actually have a duty to do so and rest in the loving arms of Christ. Now, why am I making all these comments? And why are they so important? And why did Paul begin this section? Because it doesn't sound... What follows doesn't seem to follow. Does that make sense? Why did Paul begin with imitating God, in particular in, uh, through Christ as it relates to forgiveness, kindness, and being tender-hearted? Simply put, he's about to drop the hammer. He's about to drop the hammer on the believers at Ephesus, and by extension us, with an onslaught of sins that tend to prey on us, that we fall prey to. And when we do, what we do instead of falling upon God's forgiveness is we try to earn it back. It doesn't work. So we want to punish ourselves. 
And then if that doesn't work, if that's too painful, we start punishing others for their sin. But how are we freed from this? I believe that, that 1 John 1.9 should be etched in stone on every believer's heart. If we confess our sin, He is faithful, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So beginning in verse 3, Paul calls out a number of sins that tend to trap and even, even capture us. Things, he says, that shouldn't even be named among the saints. It's not fitting. And as we move through this section, I want you to keep in mind what I've been talking about for the last 15 or so minutes. And that is this. You are, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a saint. Get these notions of sainthood from other cultures and religions and whatever else out of your mind. Biblically, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a saint, you are redeemed. And when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's our reality. Yet Paul has some things to say. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul, what are you saying here? Paul wants us to know that these things are inconsistent with love. That's what he's telling us. When a person is engaged in these things and they in any way indicate that that's loving, they are lying because it is not. First, he points us to our sexuality. I mean, it may be here this morning, here, even online, wherever, that people might say that isn't the Christian view of sexuality a bit, you know, it's constricted, a little bit Victorian. I mean, the view in our general society today is that not only is it none of your business, I think that was true of society in the 60s, but it's none of your business to tell me what is right or what is wrong. I mean, this is one of the devastating legacies of postmodernism. Because there is no truth, and no truth can be communicated, then there is no standard. And if no standard can be communicated, then there is no judgment. Ah, and secular man and woman is now free from the burden of sin. You see how that works? What a lie. They'll tell you that it's all man-made, societal constraints. They protest... When you tell me I'm wrong, you minimize my perspective. You devalue my life. You render me invisible. You objectify me. In fact, you make me an object of God's wrath. How loving is that, Christian? I mean, really, they, they do. They, they spit this stuff at you. The Bible doesn't say that. 
at all. However, we live in a society and a time that for the first time on a large scale, at a cultural level, philosophically and practically, in large part because of the internet and some other things in uh, the society's past, that intimacy has been separated from sex. That has never happened. It's all, there's always been some people where that's been true, right? I'm not saying that that hasn't existed since the time of Adam, but not at such a societal level. This is taking us back to literally, back to the mindset that Paul was talking to the Ephesians. They had just come out of this this Greek, this Greco-Roman society where these things were considered, are you ready for this? Nothing. Nothing. It would be like going to dinner. We're headed back there as a society. Trust me, it is never nothing. Now, please don't hear what I'm, I'm not saying, okay? The church is a hospital. You know, I know there's all these metaphors. Oh, it's a gas station, not a lighthouse. No, it's a lighthouse, not a gas station. <laughs> Forget that. I think this is a place for sick and wounded and injured and recovering people. That's what it is. All of us. It's not a place for the perfect. I love Howard Hendricks, uh, one of my favorite uh, professors at Dallas Seminary, uh, would frequently say, if you find a church that's perfect, don't go there. Because as soon as you do, it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> I mean, brothers and sisters, listen. A lot of preachers would, they would thunder here. I mean, is this rich territory or not? Do not have sex outside of marriage. Do not have any impurity. Do not tell off-color jokes. Do not be immoral. Do not be impure. Do not partner with darkness and on. I mean, you could, you could really, you could, this is pulpit hammering kind of stuff. I'm not going to do it. I will not. And let me tell you why. Do I believe that what Paul said wasn't important? I hold the word of God as high as is possible to hold without it overlapping into my love and care and worship for God. No, it's not that. It's just that we're the wrong, we're the wrong people to preach this to. Those people coming out of Ephesus were just coming out of this. This message is for our society. We, we you and I have had 2,000 years. Who in here does not know these things are wrong? Do you need to be reminded? Seriously? I don't think so. We, we have a history of hearing and learning and being a part of this for millennia and listen to this there's more than that it's not just history i'll tell you why we're not we're not ignorant uh, i believe the word used this morning was heathens even though we w were we are susceptible so don't 
don't get me wrong. These things are terrible things and they impact the church, but there's a difference that I want you to see here. In verse 8, we're told something. We're told, and I want you to, I want you to soak this in because it's so important, and that is we are told that we are light in the world. Hear this. As believers, you do not simply walk in the light. You are light. Unbelievers in the same text are said not to be walking in darkness, but that darkness is in them. They are darkness. I mean, now Paul makes it clear that a believer may walk in the realm of dark or walk in the realm of light. Who has not read or heard a sermon from the book of Corinthians? My word. Poor Paul. (laughs) But we must never conflate the sin of the believer with the lawless sinner outside of Christ. And I want to make that very clear because when we do, we no longer imitate the Father. Because of instead of forgiving, being tenderhearted, and being kind and compassionate to one another, we become judging, we become condemning, judgmental, critical, and even vindictive. A distinction here is really demanded between the lawless sinner of the unregenerate and the believer who's in, in sin. John, 1 John 3, 4 through 10 makes it clear that a child of the light, that is a believer in Jesus Christ, cannot by nature live in lawlessness outside of Christ. Doesn't mean they can't visit there. They can't, they can't live there. Listen to what David says. David did. David tried this. He described this as an aching in his bones that is... The spiritual water in his life had all dried up in the drought summer. You know, I, I'll just say this. You, there's no more miserable creature on the face of the earth than a Christian living in sin. Because the Holy Spirit does a couple of things. One is he restrains us. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's not all entirely left to us. We do make choices. We can't grieve the Holy Spirit. But there's another thing that we do too. When we do that, (laughs) he makes it. It's awful. But he does that not because he's hateful, not because he's vindictive, and not because he's mean. He does it to draw you back. It is not possible for the believer for it to be from an unregenerate heart. Why? Because you have a regenerate heart. I need to uh, speed up just a little bit. I want to give you a little bit more though. Romans 8, 1. That's another thing that we should remember in our hearts. Because while all of this, Paul is saying, do not partake of this lawlessness. Do not become... Uh, in a place where you're acting in a way that the lawless act. But then in Romans 8, 1, 
he says, there is therefore now condemnation for these things that I just mentioned. No. Let this hit like an arrow in your heart. There is no condemnation. No means no. The reason there's no condemnation is not because the things that we have done or left undone, are not worthy of condemnation. It's that Jesus Christ took our place on the cross and satisfied, reconciled, made the difference between the demands of God and our sin by applying to us His righteousness. God does not appoint us. He does not appoint us to contradict people we're going to contradict these evil ideas. We're going to go out there and, and, and say these practices are, are no good or these philosophies are wrong. That's not what he does. You know what he tells us to do? He says, preach the word. He says, live as light in the world because your arguments will avail nothing. Trust, trust me, they won't. The only arguments that will actually avail is to the person whose heart is already turning towards Christ and then they say, okay. It doesn't bring them there. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in God. Darkness cannot be dispelled by, by our brilliance. But it can be dispelled by our light. I mean, even at the end of this message here, Paul calls out to unbelievers in verse 14, Awake, and Christ will shine on you. God it is who calls whom He wills to awake from the sleep. And if you will listen, if you want to listen, guess what? Those that He calls, you are among no one who ever wanted Christ, no one who ever wanted Christ will not find Christ. Seek and ye shall find. And so what we need to do is let go of our pride and our sin and our self. Let God, let His forgiveness run through us. And in doing that, we can be kind and tender-hearted and compassionate to others. The separation at the end of time, which we talked about too already today, by some mechanism, which we do not know, who knows, perhaps it's imprinting, at that last day, at his, the sight of him or the sound of his voice, you know what? We're just going to do it. We are going to go and be with him. So I guess in a way we are imprinted imprinted by the Holy Spirit of God. Father, Lord, as we continue before you this day, the importance of being imitating, of imitating you, is to really get a hold of this notion of how it is through Christ you were able to forgive us because when we have that, Lord, then we can forgive. We can forgive. 
whatever, whoever. We pray for your heart to beat within us and that we might be loyal and faithful, walking as children of light in a darkened world. Through Christ our Lord, amen.